This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan from AJ Bell and Shares, and with me is Laith, also from AJ Bell. Hi, Dan. Hi, up. So we've got a great episode this week, one that will particularly appeal to people who like picking stocks. Yeah, on the agenda today, we've got market reaction to the most recent vaccine news, also the latest in the punch-up between Stelios and EasyJet. We'll be looking at why tracker funds are racing to own shares in Tesla, and also how to protect your cash if the Chancellor swoops on capital gains tax. So we're also talking about the UK government's decision to bring forward the ban on selling new petrol and diesel cars and what that means for certain companies on the stock market. And our special guest is Stephen Clapham, who's here to talk about his fantastic new book on investing. Yeah, all that to come. First up, let's look at how the markets have been behaving. Dan, what's been going on? Well, Moderna came out and said it's COVID vaccine had uh, very high levels of effectiveness. So um, we saw that give some support to share prices around the world, but it didn't trigger the same rally that we had with Pfizer's news last week. So I think overall, it's definitely good for keeping investor sentiment positive. Um, Also corporate sentiment as well, looking for the the outlook into 2021. if, If it now looks like increasingly we'll get um, a vaccine that's going to be able to start to be distributed, it means the reopening of economies. And obviously, that's very positive. So the FTSE 100 over the last month, if you combine the Pfizer and the Moderna sort of double hit of vaccine news, the, the FTSE 100 is up 7.4% in a month. But if you look on a year-to-date basis, it's still down just under 16% year-to-date. Um, we look to Asia, where... Uh, fortune's a bit different then. So the Nikkei, um, which is Japanese um, stock market, uh, one of the key benchmarks there. So the Nikkei is up 11% over last month. But actually, you know, year to date, it's it's up 10%. So, um, you know, really in quite a few bits of um, the Asian market, you would have, you would have made a, a positive return if, you, if you'd been held since the start of the year. But UK stuff, not so. But you know, we've had the sterling pick up in the last few days and hope of a, a Brexit trade deal with the EU. And of course, if sterling rises, actually, it's a, it's a negative for the FTSE 100 because the, the, the index owns so many companies in there that earn overseas. So when you, you translate the earnings from you know, mostly in dollars back into sterling, it's, it's not so not so good for them. But um, but overall, you know, it's good. Good. I mean, Leith, I don't know what you know, obviously you comment on the markets and investing in general. What? How are you sort of sort of gauging sort of sentiment at the moment towards um, sort of investors in general? Um, I feel that it's been fairly flat this week after that big bump, obviously after the Pfizer vaccine news. I was slightly surprised by, um, as you say, the fairly muted reaction in markets to um, the the Moderna news. But perhaps that was because markets were again pricing in that other vaccines would come to the market. So I think probably the big concern for me is that um, you know the biggest stock market in the world the US is you know near a record high and we're in a pretty poor economic situation and I know that is because some of the companies within that you know the likes of you know Amazon and Netflix have done one well out of the pandemic but at the same time that does that does kind of unsettle me slightly yeah I mean we've got uh, um, 
Tesla is going to be joining the S&P 500 index. So the, the, the S&P is like one of the most closely watched barometers of the mood of investors across uh, the pond, you know, and, and its performance does have a sort of um, a big impact on stock markets globally. So uh, there's estimates that nearly $10 billion worth of Tesla stock will need to be bought by index funds, uh, you know, which is, which is huge, actually huge. So whenever um, a company like that goes into sort of a prestige index, you have to have these tracker funds that need to own it um, in order sort of to be able to track the true performance of that index. So Tesla's going to become... Um, the eighth largest stock on the S&P 500 ahead of Walmart, which is the world's largest retailer. So, uh, you know, there's still there's still so much going on in the U.S. market. And I think that it's um, it seems to be plenty for investors to latch on to and to remain very positive about the the outlook there. Yet, like you're saying, like, despite um, there being sort of some negative things bumbling away in the background. but. And so back on the UK market, we've had EasyJet report its first annual loss in the airline's 25-year history as the coronavirus crisis continues to affect the travel industry. So the airline posted a loss of £1.27 billion um, for the year to 30 September. And EasyJet founder Stelios Haji Iono called these results financial jiggery-pokery. So he's had a long-running battle uh, with the business and thinks that it should stop um, expanding so fast, you know, keep buying more planes all the time. He, he just thinks it should just concentrate on um, just getting more customers on board from what they've already got and, and sort of generating more cash from the business. So he he's sort of saying that the, this is a quote saying the scoundrels absurdly upbeat message and misleading numbers about how much money they lost uh, is in stark contrast to the facts um, they're only running the business for the benefit of Airbus and not for shareholders, and um, and sort of questioning why why does anyone want to buy more aircraft when eighty percent of the fleet is grounded? So um, he's, not, you know, he's he, not sitting on the fence then. <laughs> no, he's not. Is he? <laughs> so I mean, this is um, you know, EasyJet's got got plenty of problems itself because obviously the having to gr- greatly reduce its capacity. With, you know, so many people are being told that they cannot go fly from between different countries and stuff so um you know to have your your sort of your bigger shareholder um continue sort of put these statements out as well you know it they, they've got <laughs> they got a lot on their plate so yeah it's good for um, the executives though it keeps them on their toes yeah yeah definitely so so i mean it, it, on in terms of what's happening there with you know markets it, it's um there's still plenty of companies coming out and generally there's quite a lot of companies sort of still beating expectations which might suggest that um uh, you know clearly expectations were too low whether that's everyone's just being too conservative when they were set a few months ago um or or things are sort of picking up i think what we want to see is perhaps another quarter um or another six months of earnings to get a true picture of um how companies overall are coping so it shouldn't be a shock to hear that the chancellor is looking to find ways to pay for COVID-19 support measures. And so we've got some news around potential changes to capital gains tax. So Laith, just how bad is this news? Well, I mean, the answer is that um, it could be pretty bad, I'm afraid to say. Um, you know, the the particularly for, for business owners, for, for landlords and for investors who'd be most likely in the firing line uh, for CGT, nothing formal 
has been announced yet, so it is important to stress that. But the Office for Tax Simplification has published a report. It was commissioned by the Chancellor earlier in the year, so obviously you know, there's, there's government intent in this direction. And they're suggesting a pretty big clampdown on, on CGT. It isn't policy yet. It might not make it into policy. But you can see how increasing capital gains tax might take a few boxes uh, for the Treasury. Um, you know, the Conservatives are positioned as the party of low taxation. But, um, you know, they have got a huge a huge hole in the, in the public finances to repair. And, and CGT is a tax on the wealthier members of society. So it kind of doesn't put the, push the burden onto, onto those who can't pay for it. And it's fair to say that there is currently a mismatch in terms of how capital gains are taxed compared to income tax. And it's actually not that long ago when they were the same. It would, you have to go back to 2008, 2009, when capital gains tax was actually cut by a Labour government um, uh, from uh, income tax rates down to 18%. And, and the final thing is it doesn't put as much of a break on the economy as raising things like income tax or VAT because it does it does have a longer-term effect, but it doesn't actually affect the pound uh, in your pocket going out and spending it. Um, so you can see how all that kind of adds up to quite an appealing prospect uh, for the Chancellor. There are basically three proposals on the table. Uh, the Office of Tax Simplifications thinks that they are all goers. So the first one is that uh, they think uh, capital gains tax rates should be equalised with income tax rates. So currently you pay either 10% or 20% on chargeable gains, depending on whether you're basic rate or higher rate taxpayer respectively. You also pay an extra 8% for property disposals. Now that would rise under these proposals to either 20% 40% or 45%, bringing it in line with basic rate, higher rate and additional rates of income tax. Um, they're also saying that the annual exempt amount, the amount of chargeable gains you can make before paying any capital gains tax, currently a fairly generous £12,300 a year, should be cut back to around £2,000 to £4,000. So quite a big suggestion there. And they're also suggesting that the rule be removed the capital gains tax are not charged on death as, as they are at the moment. So altogether, that could bring a lot more people into paying capital gains tax while also increasing the amount that existing taxpayers to at all. Now, I'll stress again, that is not policy currently. You know, the government could choose to enact all of those measures. It could choose to enact some of them or none of them um, and probably we will get an inkling of what's going on next March when I think we are expecting some sort of fiscal announcement in the form of a budget. Um, so all of that really does underline the importance of using tax shelters like pensions and ISAs where the growth is free from CGT. And also, if you're a married couple or in a civil partnership, spreading the assets between both members of, of, of the partnership because you can then use two lots of the annual CGT free allowance every year. That's currently 2300 of course. And so at the moment, that gives most people sufficient protection from CGT, but we'll see how that pans out in the future. Yeah, so I guess if we, if we hear something in March, this, this, it's still it's realistic then that from 6th of April onwards, the new tax year, that we'll, we could see the changes as soon as that? Or do you think it might take longer to implement? It's it's possible. I suspect they might want to give a bit more um, leeway on it um, because if they, you know, if we have a fiscal statement in March to April, it really doesn't give many 
people much time to prepare um, and also what you risk then is a fire sale of assets to basically get in at lower capital gains tax rates one of the things that they might do is they say we are equalizing rates but possibly even even stagger it over a number of years so that you don't get that big bulge where everyone's just like well i need to sell everything right now because otherwise i'm going to be doubling my tax rate on it so it's possible that we could get something that says well from april um, um, this is happening. There have been occasions when in the past, you know, tax has been changed on that day. So from that day, you can no longer, for instance, put X amount into a pension. Um, but I suspect that because capital gains does also have an effect on, um, you know, selling assets as well, they won't want a fire sale. So they may look to stagger it over a longer period. In other government-related news, it looks like the shift to electric vehicles could be coming sooner than expected here in the UK. Dan, what's the latest that's been announced on that front? So the UK government is bringing forward the date at which it's going to ban the sale of new diesel or petrol cars. So originally it was looking at 2040. Um, there was a slight amendment, and now we now it's saying 2030. So you, essentially you've got um, just under 10 years here uh, until there's going to be a massive shift. So the fact that they're bringing it forward by 10 years um, should be of interest to investors, um, i.e. how can or, or how and whether I should play this theme in my portfolio. Um, and I think you know, we, we've known there's going to be this driver, uh, and it's we've known it's not just the UK, many countries around the world are doing the same sort of thing, giving this, giving a certain deadline. Um, but because it's speeding up, it means that you know, perhaps people should look a bit closely at this and, and what are the opportunities. So, um, Leith, I don't know if you're a fan of um, watching telly much, but there's a programme with Ewan McGregor where he rides a motorbike from South America to Los Angeles called The Long Way Up. Um, he's done a few of these, but the, the most, the recent one is where... They've done it on electric bikes. So, Leith, I don't know. Have you checked this program out at all? Not one I'm aware of at the moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've just finished watching it, and it was it was really interesting. But immediately, they the first thing they said was, like, we have a big problem here because there isn't the electric charging infrastructure to do that. And I think this is the, the, the critical um, issue for, for any investor looking at this space is that um, – it's all very well saying, yeah, we want to have essentially shift towards electric vehicles, but uh, if there aren't enough charging points, then how are we going to make it work properly? So with with this uh, Long Way Out program, they got Rivian electric vehicle maker to install 240 charging points along the way. I mean, essentially, that is implying it's just an easy fix, but doing this on a mass market scale is, is huge. And I think so th- there's definitely going to be um, a push towards fixing this infrastructure problem now whether it's getting more people to have charging units at home so if they had an electric car they can charge it overnight perhaps being less reliant on having perhaps the same number of uh, sort of charging points as we have petrol stations but you know still people still want to know that they can go on a um, on a distance and of say more than 100 miles at a time um, and not have to worry about whether there's going to be a charging point so uh, I was just having a think about this. Uh, Scottish Mortgage is an investment trust. It's, it's very popular amongst people in the UK. And that's got a, a stake of Tesla, which we talked about earlier. 
Um, so obviously that's electric vehicle manufacturer. It's also got a stake in Northvolt, which is a, a company it claims will be critical to the creation of European battery manufacturing capacity. And it's got a stake in ChargePoint, which is one of the world's largest electric vehicle charging networks. So you know, th- these are sort of obviously definitely play to this theme. But I think if you ever to buy a, a fund or a trust, you must remember that they're going to have stakes in lots of other companies as well. And, um, you know, success with, say, just a handful linked to a certain theme might be diluted by, um, say, less success in, in other areas. It's just something for you to consider. Um, there is a stock called AB Dynamics, which does um, testing for vehicles. It's got uh, very sort of robotic stuff in there as well. And I think that they would definitely be um, well positioned to see um, an increase in developments for for electric vehicles and new models being launched. And obviously, it's going to have to be tested for safety reasons first. Um, Johnson Matthews Chemical Companies, they're they're working on um, electric vehicle battery. And you have to sort of consider people like Royal Dutch Shell and BP. Now, you may think that's a bit odd because they're big oil companies, but um, you know they are looking very closely at this space. They're obviously making this transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And, and you know, BP bought ChargeMaster um, a couple of years ago. Um, ChargeMaster was going to come on to the UK stock market. Uh, it was already doing all the roadshows, um, made the announcement that it was going to list. And literally just at the last minute, BP just made an offer and said, I think, we've, I think we'll just own you rather than waiting for you to become a listed company and then seeing what you're like. Um, and I think there's in it, other things to think of is perhaps um, there's a stock called Smart Metering Systems, which uh, does project work for connecting um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And, and they're actually working on a project with Gov- uh, Virgin Media at the moment where um, it's trying to find a solution to help local authorities deal with the issue of on-street charging across the UK. So there's definitely lots of stocks to play into this theme, but um, you have to think, yes, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's nine, 10 years until this deadline's coming up in the UK. Um, this perhaps not going to see a sudden rush of activity in 2021, but um, there's definitely opportunities to have a look out there. I mean, Leith, do you drive a car at all? I do, rarely, but I do I do actually have um, a, a Volkswagen Golf um, so I do occasionally drive it and it is a diesel car and, um, I'm not someone who buys lots of cars. So, you know, next time I buy a car, I probably will switch over to electric. But what, what you said actually, um, does kind of resonate with me in that I would want to know that, you know, you can drive for a reasonable period of time without, you know, having to, to charge it up three times on, on a journey. And I think that's an important point about the infrastructure being there. It's really important that that's there in order to support the, the sales of the actual vehicles as well. Yeah, because I, I think car retailers are obviously going to be able to shift to sell um, different models and they're going to, have to rely on the um, traditional car there. But I'm wondering on the servicing side, it's very different. The, the amount of stuff inside an electric vehicle is probably um, you know, to be able to... Re- repair and fix stuff is that the same skills as a, as of a mechanic has at the moment I, I noticed that halfers in its latest results were talking about having to invest in um specialists in this area um, in recognition that this is where the market's going so um i'm sure there will be lots of businesses having to slightly tweak the way they do uh, business and operate and, and maybe having to invest um and of course the other thing is to think about is that that 
if you read the announcement from the government, they're they're quite big on hydrogen as well. So um, there are a few sort of hydrogen related stocks on the market, including yeah. ITM Power. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, overall, it, it, it's you know, it, it, we we kind of knew it was it was happening, but it was sort of bumbling away in the background. I think a bit, but um, it brings it much more to focus now with this this sort of a twenty thirty deadline. Yeah, and a lot of stuff, I think, pointing in that in that green direction at the moment. So thanks a lot for that, Dan. Now, a lot of people at home listening to this podcast will no doubt be interested in improving their stock picking skills. And this week, we've got just the guest to help them on that front. Stephen Clapham has a new book out. It's called The Smart Money Method and it explains how to pick stocks like a professional. Now, during his career, Stephen's worked for various investment banks as an analyst and also for several hedge funds. Dan recently caught up with him to chat about the book and some of the pearls of wisdom within it. Once you've listened to the interview, there will be a chance to win a copy of the book. But first, let's hear what Stephen has to say. So, Stephen, thanks ever so much for joining us. Your your latest book is a fascinating insight into stock picking techniques used by sort of top industry professionals. And I, I, I would actually say it's probably the, one of the best books on investing I've read in a very long time. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, I think it's brilliant, you, you know, sharing your experiences. Um, and so the, the message I got from it is that you really need to keep your eyes open and sort of soak up as much information as possible. But you know, look to see what's happening. And um, for the people that you talk to, is the information that they can pass to you relevant to your investment decision making? So th- th- there's a really great story in the book about how you talk to a mum at a school event who worked for a UK retailer. And after a couple of glasses of wine, they opened up and was talking about low morale in the business. And this is absolutely fascinating. So this is from your, your investing experience. Are these um, sort of opportunities plentiful? Um, there's lots of people who, who actually can share information uh, that can help you. Well, Dan, listen, thanks very much for having me on. And I'm so delighted that you enjoyed the book. Thank you. That's great. Um, This particular um, evening was just quite fascinating because um, one of the mums at school was very senior at, um, well, I can say it was Marks and Spencer. Uh, She doesn't work there any longer, so I don't think she's going to get into trouble for it. (laughs) And, And, you know, it was quite evident from talking to her that she was, she, morale was really, really low. And, um, you know, this is just a sort of snippet of information, understanding, insight, peek behind the scenes that gives you that additional comfort about a short. And it so happened at the time I was short of Marks and Spencer. And, um, you know, the, the shares then were trading about four pounds. So they, they've fallen by 75-odd percent. And um, I knew that the business was challenged, but the idea that the senior management were in low morale mode, didn't really know what to do about it, just reinforced that. But I think this is something that everybody can do because it doesn't matter what level you are. Obviously, if you're a billionaire hedge fund manager, you have contacts at very high levels, you have a better quality of information. But there's a lot of information from the shop floor. And um, everybody's got contacts, everybody's got friends, everybody's got relatives, they all work somewhere. And they can all give you some information 
there can just be that little piece in the jigsaw that makes you extra convinced about an investment opportunity. This one happened to be in the short side, but there can be plenty on the long side, you know, where you 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 have a friend who says, oh man, I'm so tired at work. We're, we're so busy. We've never been this busy. That's exactly the sort of thing, information that's really helpful when you're looking at an investment. Yeah. So what do you think that um, it's not just about collecting information on, on the stock you might have interest in it's also looking at the the competitors as well suppliers i mean in your book you talk about um you know as a hedge fund um expert you go and talk to so many different people involved i mean what what, what can you give me examples of who if you were researching a stock how wide would you cast your net in terms of um trying to get these nuggets of information yeah i mean i I would cast my net very, very wide indeed. Quite often, um, I used to find that I, I would be drawn to a particular area for some reason. There would be some change in the external environment that said, I should go and investigate XYZ stock. And when I was investigating XYZ stock, I would always look at the whole value chain. So I'd look at the customers and I'd look at the suppliers. And you'd be surprised how often I would start off looking at one stock and I would end up actually buying a supplier or a customer because that was the point of greatest leverage to the particular change that I was that I was looking at. And this happens you know, this happens often because it, particularly for what the, the area that I was involved in, I was doing special situation investing. So we were trying to find stocks which had unusually high return opportunities. And often that would be in an area where I actually didn't know anything about it. So in order to learn, you kind of immerse yourself in that industry. And of course, when you first start, you've got an assumption about how the industry works. But when you start to get into it, you find that that initial assumption isn't accurate. And you then find, oh, well, actually, you know, the, the opportunity here isn't in the company, but it's in the guy that supplies them with the capital equipment. And so I would then go and, and research that stock and, and that would be the, the, the ending investment. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, the message is that people do need to do a lot of research. But I think for, for perhaps private investors, do you think that they might get to the point where unless they take, you know, doing this, perhaps full-time or, or can commit a lot of their spare time to researching that they're just um, they're not going to be able to do it. I, I, I quite, in, in your book, you talk about challenging people to perhaps write a research note themselves and, the, uh, and that would bring a lot of benefits, even though it would take a lot of time. So do you think, is, is it a message of you, if you put the work in, you're going to get potentially a better result? Well, the, the, it's funny that you mentioned the research note because that was hugely controversial I got huge pushback from that. So this book is basically a summary of a course that I give. So I used to give this course in person. Obviously, in the present virus and circumstances, I'm not doing any in-person courses. And I've actually put this course online. So if you buy the book, there's actually a coupon to, that you can do the course as well. It gives you a big discount. But the... When I did this to one group of private investors, they were all kind of laughing, scoffed at me. Oh, you, what do you mean write a note? And I said, look, don't laugh. Don't 
say, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. Don't say you don't have enough time. Just do it for the next investment. Write down, it doesn't need to be a long note, write down one side of A4. You know what happened? A few weeks later, they started coming back to me saying, you know what? That was the best thing I've done because the, the act of writing it down makes you think. And it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, just write down. The first thing I say is, look, write down what the company does and don't write down, this is a software company. I write down, this is a company supplying accounting software, which is critical for doing bank reconciliations, which is sold in a subscription basis with a 2% annual churn. You know, so give a, a bit of detail about the financial characteristics of the business, because that's much more informative. And then write down, why are you buying the company? Why are you buying this stock? And every, every stock has got an investment hypothesis, which should be dead simple. You should be able to explain it to a 12-year-old. And it should be one line long. And once that reason for buying the share is four lines long and very complicated, you already know that you're not on a winner because good ideas are almost always really simple. Yeah, so it, another sort of thing I picked up from the book was the importance of listening carefully and critically. Because I, I know if you, if you go and read the results from a, from a company, inevitably they'll give you the highlights at the start. And it's all always seems to sound very positive, the stuff, but it's, um, there's a very interesting story you talk about with, with Ryanair and EasyJet in there, where Ryanair talked about having problems, but EasyJet wasn't having the problems, or certainly wasn't admitting to it at the time. Um, how how are you able to sort of make a judgment that if one company is perhaps grumbling about something, it's it going to affect all the sector? Is that just down to experience? Are you able to sort of read between the lines or... Um, is it just having faith in, in your conviction that a problem is widespread? Well, I mean, obviously it depends on the individual circumstances. In this, this particular occasion, um, I knew that there was too much capacity in, in the winter, that winter, in the short-haul European market, and particularly too much low-cost capacity. And so I knew that both Ryanair and EasyJet were going to have problems. And sure enough, you know, so one of my big clients, big hedge fund client, we went short, um, I took quite a big short position in Ryanair. When Ryanair had a profits warning, um, obviously the Ryanair stock collapsed, but EasyJet, the CEO, told analysts, oh, we're okay, we're fine. And um, I just thought, well, it's highly unlikely that Ryanair would be having a problem achieving its budgeted yields, and EasyJet didn't. Unless EasyJet had been much more conservative, that would be the only rationale. And EasyJet, from the numbers that were in, in the market, it's, the yield assumptions weren't much more conservative. So I thought, well, either EasyJet don't know what they're doing, which you think, well, that sounds quite unlikely, or they're just going to experience this later. But it's highly unlikely that if there's too many seats in the market, that they'll be able to achieve their desired price. Because, you know, too many seats means you've got a discount to fill them. So we, you know, I called up my 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 number one client and said, look, Ryanair 
I've got a problem. We've we've made 40% on this short in three months. I think we should switch the short into EasyJet. And they said, yeah, you're dead right, because it's high. You know, the odds are with you on that sort of trade. Now, you know, the, the, the problem with investing is you never have a complete set of information to make a decision. There is always a, you've always got to make assumptions because you're 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 investing on the basis of forward projections. You're trying to predict the future. And that is a matter of probabilities. So, you know. Obviously, we were taking a risk because the chief executive of EasyJet could have known exactly what the numbers were and could have been right. But we felt that he wasn't he wasn't the best chief executive. You know, Michael O'Leary was a you know is and then was a fantastic CEO. Um, the EasyJet CEO at the time, um, I didn't have quite as much faith in him. So it just seemed to me to be exactly the sort of bet to make. And sure enough, um, EasyJet came out with a profits warning maybe two months later. The stock halved and then proceeded to go down even more because the stock market felt not only were they in that sort of rough patch, which obviously was more likely to be temporary than enduring, but they also had management that didn't really know what was going on. So the shares continued to decline, and um, eventually the CEO was forced out. But the, you know, th- this is all about risk reward, and you know, when you've got an opportunity like that, it's quite rare. When you've got an opportunity like that, you you've just got to go for it. Yeah. What? What? How? What are your sort of thoughts about how um, private investors should be thinking about their portfolio? Do, I get the impression that a lot of people are always looking for the next idea but perhaps they're not keeping their eye on what they've already got is there is this sort of a risk that um if you're going to do this properly that people aren't paying enough attention to checking what they've what they own whether it's probably you know if they, if they are um long on it so that they, they own the shares expecting them to rise or or if they are short where they would profit from a falling share price what, I mean, what, what do you think there's not enough attention paid to, to existing stuff? Well, I mean, you're, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the problem, and you see, I mean, this isn't just a, an issue for private investors. This is an issue for professionals as well, professional analysts. The temptation is always to look after the next shiny new toy, you know, the next idea. And the, the old stuff that you've got sitting in the portfolio to pay less attention to it. But of course, the absolutely most important thing, the most important determinant of your performance is what you own today. So that's where you should devote the vast majority of your time and energy, because what you want to do is you want to ensure that you've got early warning if things are going wrong. You want to have early warning if there's actually going to be an acceleration in the performance of the things you own, because you might want to buy more. And there, there's no set rule that you should be spending 80% of your time on your existing portfolio and 20% on the new stuff. But that probably would be a, a reasonable a reasonable proportion. The, you know, the, the fact is that you're always scouting the market to see what's happening. So you're looking at what changes are there in the external environment, which may affect both the shares I own and other shares. 
And you're also looking at constantly looking at the share prices, you know, how are valuations moving? And should that affect my attitude to my portfolio? But the, the, you know, the really important thing is to watch what you own at the same time, think about the new opportunities, but always your existing portfolio is where the bulk of your time should be spent. Brilliant. Well, Stephen, thank you ever so much for joining us. And uh, so Stephen's book, The Smart Money Method, is now out and it talks about how to pick stocks like a hedge fund pro. So Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction to that interview, we've got three copies of Stephen Clapham's book, The Smart Money Method, to give away. All you need to do is email podcast at ajbell.co.uk. That's podcast at ajbell.co.uk with your name and postal address, and we'll pick some of the names out of the hat to decide the winners. The competition closes on the 2nd of December, 2020. So that's everything from us this week. So it'd be great if you could leave a review of the podcast, particularly if you use platforms like Apple. Uh, it's also worth noting that we've just hooked up with Amazon Music. So if you've got one of those fancy smart speakers like Alexa, you can now access the podcast by saying play Money and Markets podcast. So see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.